Today our topic is uh, where are you, where are you going, and how are you going to get there. I think it's stated a little more poetically than that, but that's basically what we're talking about. And it's also been uh, a a sub-theme of an enormous number of questions that people ask, because that really is the way we think. It's uh, an unfortunate way to think in a, in a certain fact because it, it's a materialistic uh, attempt. It's, a, it's an attempt to paste a materialistic form on something that is, by definition, it's outside of anything that has that kind of form. It also, it's a tremendous factor related to the fact that everyday human life is so competitive and uh, especially, well actually everywhere these days, it's very competitive. People are always measuring and there is this profound, deep, underlying insecurity that other people are getting ahead, that I'm falling behind, that I don't measure up. It's, um, It's exceedingly unfortunate because all of that way of thinking is exactly the opposite of what spiritual life is. You know, it's, we are children of the infinite. We are loved unconditionally by our Divine Mother without reference to what we do or who we are or anything like that. Um, God has one interest in us and that is to awaken us to the joy of our own nature. And God, Guru, Divine Mother, there's, we can use all these words interchangeably just depending on our personal bob, is constantly giving us the opportunity to have the experiences we need in order to learn the lessons that are required for us to extricate ourselves from delusion and to dis- rediscover our own nature. The word realization is a very important word on the spiritual path. When Master uh, came to America, in, in India he, he coined the word Yagoda, which had just was a combination of words that he put together, created Yagoda Satsanga Society. When he came to America, which is where he really defined his work, it's not by any means confined to America, but America was like a clean slate. Master, when he was asked by Swamiji if what he brought <coughs> was a new religion, Master responded that it was a new expression. Because truth is eternal, but every time an avatar comes, he freshens it, he brings it back, and he speaks in terms of, as I've talked in this room, when, especially when I was talking about Jesus, he speaks to the civilization and the culture that he's sent to, to the needs of the disciples, and to the, the bigger mission that Babaji especially has always been concerned with, which is the long evolution of planets and civilization. And so Master was sent by by Babaji, that's how he often described it. He was sent by Babaji to do this specific work, and in autobiography it says how Babaji is concerned with the long evolution. So Master walked into a time between uh, Kali Yuga and Dwapara, I've said this these things in this room quite a bit, so I don't have to, I'm not going to explain it at length. But he had to, to, to intuit, sort of feel what people would be ready to accept and how they would 
be ready to accept it. So America was a real clean slate for that, being virtually totally ignorant about all of this. I mean, it was just completely new. I know I said in here that <coughs> Master said that most Indians understand what, what the project is to realize God and are therefore reluctant to take it on. He said, uh, <laughs> yeah, and just knowing, believing in reincarnation, there's no hurry, <laughs> some, some lifetime. But Americans not having any idea and having such a can-do spirit, Master just came to America and said, we can realize God, and every, all the Americans said, yes, let's do it, just like this. But Master had to find words for it. And Yagoda was just, what was the point? So he, he used the phrase self-realization, which was not original with Master. It had been, had been used historically for a long, long time, but it was perfect because the word, uh, the word self, of course, is, is essential with the capital S because it tells us that this is inward, not outward. You know, we have to tell the difference between the small self and the, the infinite self, but it also says this is ours, it's our responsibility. And, but realization is the word that is also really vital to this because a realization is something that is already there. But you're just not aware of it, isn't it? You say, oh, I realize that I have this disease. I realize that I have this psychological syndrome. I realize that I have a real talent for. And it isn't created, it's just noticed. And so that is the fundamental premise of our spiritual path, is that we actually don't create it. We just notice it. And so if it's already there and we're just beginning to notice it, this whole idea that we're in a competitive race to acquire or that we can actually be deprived or fall behind or anything like that is all just actually quite simply Satan talking to us. If we want to, I, I love the phrase, the devil made me do it. I, I find that to be extremely useful. <laughs> and the devil does make us do a lot of stuff that we wouldn't do otherwise. You can call it Maya, you can call it delusion, but there is a conscious force that is trying to interrupt um, our freedom, is trying to interrupt our happiness. Swamiji made an interesting comment once. He said that Master sometimes would have to use strong words with, with his disciples. He, he said Master never liked to be stern, but when he needed to be, he would be, and he would also be very frank, very strong. When Swamiji said to Master at one point, I don't want to have to lecture, I don't want to have to stand in front of um, talking to people, Master said, it's what you have to do, you better learn to like it. I mean, that's how long the conversation was. There was no hand-holding, there was no sympathy, there was no, yes, I understand, we can work together on this. On another occasion, yeah, when Swami said something similar about the same subject, Master's response on that occasion was, living for God is martyrdom. <laughs> Once again, like, who cares what you want? Who cares what you think? Who cares what all your precious preferences are? We're here to transcend all of that, and that is simply that. When Swami once said, my father, meaning Ray Walters, the man who had sired him, Swami just started to say, my father, Master interrupted, said, you have no father, just like that, Swami said, my earthly father. Master said, that's better. You know, it wasn't like he wanted to repudiate his existence, but he was exact with Swami. 
But Swamiji also said that no matter how Master spoke to you or what he corrected, no matter how fundamental the correction, you always felt encouraged rather than feeling discouraged by having your weaknesses pointed out. When he pointed them out, it always gave you hope rather than taking hope away from you. Because even when Master would correct you, he would be correcting you with the understanding that this is just some little thing we have to get out of the way. When Swamiji was invited to play the part of Jesus Christ in a tableau that the Masonic Hall was putting on for some occasion, Swamiji had a beard at that time, which Master had him grow a beard so that he wouldn't look quite so young, because he was so young and he was having to teach people who were twice his age, and Master thought it would give him more, more character, was how he put it. At that time, no one was wearing beards. Master said it would give him character. Swami said it will make me a character, is what he said. <laughs> but uh, Master trimmed the beard for him, showed him exactly how he should wear it. And for a few years in Swami's life, he was clean-shaven. But almost all his life, he wore the short beard that Master wanted him to wear. So he was invited to play Jesus because no one else in town was wearing a beard. And so he looked more like the image of Jesus. So Swamiji, he had to sit on the rock of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified and sigh every so often. That was basically what Swami had to do. There were no lines. He just sat there and looked like he was praying and then every so often looked like he was <sighs> a little worn out by the whole thing. But afterwards, Master asked him, you know, how, how did it go? And Master said that he'd re received positive reports that Swami really looked like Jesus. Swami said, Sir, you know, it's not much to look like, like Christ. I'd rather be like Christ. And Master, Swami said, so casually, just said, oh, that will come, that will come. That was his point of view. Because, first of all, he saw, he saw us, I mean, any Master sees us as a, as a field of light, we see ourselves as this fixed form, but they see us as this field of light. And, and the Masters also transcend time. So the fact that realization will come to us trapped as we are in time, we think that that's like not now. But for a Master who lives in the timeless zone, now is now. <laughs> then is now. Future is now. The fact that it will come to be is, is such an inevitable and absolute truth that it's also the truth in the present. And Master had total confidence. He did not have confidence that we wouldn't suffer. He did not have confidence that we wouldn't zig and zag on the way to that realization. But the fact that our success was already an accomplished fact caused him, no matter what he had to correct, he was just making a minor adjustment for what was inevitable. And that was the spirit, Swamiji said, that they received it. It was almost like a compliment and a correction was almost the same thing. It was just Master saying that you are a child of God, self-realization is your true nature, and so you always felt encouraged. Now, the reason, the context in which Swami stated this is he was saying in contrast to when delusion is speaking to us. And I love, as I said, I like the word the devil because it gives me someone to blame. 
which I find very helpful. <laughs> and even if, in a in an uh, you know a Vedantic philosophical sense, I'm talking about an aspect of my own nature. Who I am is a bit of a confused issue to me most of the time. You know, we are God, and we are confused, and we are ego, and we are soul. All these different things, the pronouns get really mixed up. And so I like to have a force that I'm not really victimized by that force, but I identify, if you want, if you will, that part of me. But the devil made me do it. Means that what could I have been thinking? You know, I know better than this. Or why was I so confused? Well, the devil made me do it. It's a kind of a cheerful way of saying it. But Swamiji's speaking of Satan, which is the word he used. He said, when Satan is talking to us, we feel discouraged. And that's an, an extraordinarily first premise for this conversation. Where are we going and how are we going to get there? No matter how rational, no matter how factual, no matter how persuasive, if any thought of any kind makes us lose faith, in our own spiritual success, you can be absolutely certain it's not God or Guru speaking to you. Because that is how the dark force works. The dark force tries to persuade us that we have no hope. He wants to bring us over to his side. There's this constant interplay in, in, uh, on a planet, you know, in, in creation. Because the nature of creation is dual. From the one reality, the single spirit vibrates it goes back and forth so it will never it, in the in the created world it will never stay on one side or another and there is this force of maya maya is actually a much better word than satan because satan you think you would be able to recognize more easily but maya is a magician maya is a, a goddess maya is really really clever and she just looks like us you know, she looks like you look in the mirror and you're looking at Maya, but you think you're looking at yourself. But it insinuates itself into our consciousness and tries to discourage us because the job of Maya is to keep the balance between light and shadow. And the job of the Guru is to pull us out of the shadow into the light. I also, <clears throat> uh, I love the word shadow. If, we, if you think of Master's poem, Samadhi, which he recommends that we memorize, which I, I memorize and forget several different times over the course of 50 years. Mostly I know it right now. Vanish the veils of light and shade. That's what Master says, light and shade, which is a word like shadow. He doesn't say vanish the veils of light and dark, because shade is simply a position where the light is blocked. And that's what we have to understand. The veil blocks the light. It doesn't destroy it, there, because there is nothing but light. It just makes it hard to see. Vanish the veil of light and shade. You know, there it is. And so that's what we're working with. So the first thing we have to understand is where are we going, is we're going to realize what is. We're really not trying to accomplish anything. We're just trying to not be confused. So the entire spiritual path is just trying to, to diminish our confusion. Let me think if this is really true. Yes, I believe this is what Swamiji said to me. I haven't, I haven't thought about this in a long time, so I'm wanting to make sure this is a true memory. I think at one point when I was trying to get a compliment from him, 
is this right or is this about Swami and Master? But I can't remember. Let's say it's either Swami and Master or Swami and me. Now I can't remember. But basically the comment was so-and-so, whoever it was, is a lot less confused than they used to be. And, and that's really the essence of it. We're trying to be a lot less confused. And so when we get on the wrong track, no matter how colossal the karma may be, no matter how long in one incarnation it takes us to work it out, whatever it might be, it's just confusion. It's just a little veil of shade over the light. And that's all we're working with. And if we ever feel discouraged, it's because Maya has insinuated itself into our brain and has tried to tell us we're something we're not. Whenever God is speaking to us, we're always encouraged. That's, that's, that's the first thing, because this is who we're going to be. Just hear Master's voice in your mind. Oh, that will come, that will come. Just as easy as that. You know, and I had an interesting realization. <clears throat> I was actually thinking of the present man who is President of the United States, whose name I seldom say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's, he lacks compassion. He seems to lack a, a sense of being part of all that is. He seems to be very unconcerned about uh, the suffering of other people. I mean, God knows there have been works of dictators and people far less far, far worse than him, who either had worse temperament or just more opportunity to make people suffer. But he's a good example, nonetheless. And I was thinking about the karma that the man will be getting for when you cause suffering, when you're indifferent to the suffering of others, what you, that, that sets up the need to learn a lesson. And that lesson is to not to be indifferent to the suffering of others. And generally, the way we learn not to be indifferent is we suffer. And then when we begin to suffer, we realize that this is not a happy experience. And gradually, first we do um, victim revenge, victim revenge, victim revenge for a long time, meaning many incarnations. You hurt me, I'll hurt you, you hurt me, I'll hurt you. Then we gradually figure out that that doesn't work, but we, we suffer, that's why we learn that revenge doesn't work either because then I'm just the victim the next time and eventually we learn compassion and then we realize I don't want anyone to feel like this ever and your suffering is the same as my suffering and I realized thinking about the president that God is in charge of his life too and is giving him the opportunities he needs in this particular case, to squander good karma and create bad karma, or squander privilege and comfort and create suffering and difficulty in the future, this lifetime or another lifetime. But God is just as pleased to see him progressing through his delusions as he is pleased to see anyone progress through their delusions. And using an, an extreme example, he's a modest example, there are much worse examples, as I've said, but when we realize that we're all equal in the eyes of God, and progress is progress, regardless of whether it's in a straight line or in a circle or down, moving down, you know, sometimes we just have to swim farther out before we can turn around and come back. That's basically what we do. We just, we're swimming away from the divine shore, and we have to get out as far as we want to get out before we turn back. And even if we're going the wrong way, you see it's still progress. 
That's why the masters are always encouraging. Yes, please, make it worse. <laughs> Go ahead, make it worse. Because until you make it worse, it's never going to get better. I've, I've recently come to feel this, uh, this thought because you know, in the position that I'm in, many people confide in me and as a consequence, I gain a greater awareness than some people do of how much suffering even very, very good people have to go through and how often very good people are subject to very bad actions by people who are less good than they are. I mean, there's a lot of things that are um, very depressing, could be very depressing. But I've come to understand something that Swami always knew. <coughs> Swami said, and I've said it to you here, um, whenever he would see someone suffering, he would think, how much greater then will be their joy when they finally realize God? Because the contrast, given the darkness they're experiencing now, will make that light all the sweeter and the brighter. When we move away from time, from, from the rigidity of time, we realize that, that we're, in, we're in motion, that's where we're going. So this, this action now is going to have a positive consequence here. The way I've thought about it is related to that which is, this is the kind of suffering that drives people to God. Because we don't go to God until something stops working for us. That just is the way it is. If we're perfectly content, and this is why we sometimes try to convert the wrong people. When I, first, when I was first learning about the spiritual path when I was like 18, 19 years old, and for some weird reason, and I've seen this consistently. People who are brand new to the spiritual path think the idea of giving up all your desires is an attractive way to convert other people. I think it's completely nuts, but I myself was like, giving up all your desires, that's not usually like the first thing people want to hear. Oh, all that stuff you want, you don't really want it, you know, and it's not going to make you happy. This is not an attractive technique. So I was trying to convert someone on that basis by trying to explain to her I said, haven't you noticed, you know, all the things you buy and the stuff you acquire, you think it's going to make you so happy and it doesn't really make you happy. Yes, yes, she's saying, I really understand that. I see that it's true. And just before I could close the deal and bring her to God, <laughs> she said, that's why it's so important to keep wanting new things. <laughs> was a very reasonable conclusion on her part, you know, you just keep it going. There was a time when I put a new carpet into the apartment that I was living in and I wanted a particular color which was sort of hard to get and so it ended up, we had to order it from across the country and it was delivered and then it was all finally, you know, just the thing went on for weeks, you know, you start down these projects and, and things happen and you become fixated and, you know, if you're going to do it, Swamiji said, more on more than one occasion, you don't get out of karma by doing it badly. So if you have an apartment that you have to make attractive and you don't want to be attached, you don't get out of the karma by making it ugly. You know, you have to do what you set out to do and you have excellence is part of the spiritual path. So this big project for this carpet, finally the carpet is laid and I'm alone in the apartment, you know, the furniture is all gone, there's nothing but the carpet. No, and I'm just like 
trying to be happy. <laughs> you know, I sort of stretch out on the carpet, I look at the carpet, I walk around. I finally realized that I could love the carpet, but the carpet could not love me back. <laughs> so it was kind of a one-way drain, if you know what I mean. <laughs> no matter what I did, it just lay there. And to use a very simple phrase, it didn't give a damn. <laughs> and not that I needed a lesson in it, but I had been so involved in getting the carpet, it was just so dramatic to me. On another occasion, similar, but a little, slightly more dynamic, because it was a little more creative. We were, we, this, in the age before the internet, when we used to print things, you remember those days? When we had paper, those of you who were a little older. So we had a, a magazine for our... Um, temple with all the activities and we'd print it every three months or so and I was super involved in that project. We totally redesigned it. We made it, just got this great designer. It was absolutely gorgeous. When it finally came out I was so pleased with it. I read every word of it. I looked at every picture. I went back to the front. I read every word. I looked at every picture. I went, I read every word, I looked at every picture. Finally, I looked at it, and the way it came to me was that I had squozen every ounce of happiness out of this thing that it was ever going to give me. And I just had to put it back. Because the same thing, it couldn't love me back. You know? And that's sort of what we're always trying to do. We're always trying to get something, or in, I have to say honestly, someone to love us back. And even the best of people you know, with the most sincere and the best hearts, even if they love us completely and honorably for our whole lives, they can only love us so much because that's who we are. You know, even the, even the most refined kind of human love, the most refined kind of human love, Master said beautifully, is almost the same as divine love. I love that, almost the same. But nonetheless, that's what he said. But it's not quite. And so there's always going to be that little bit of us that really longs for that complete and perfect love. And that's where we're going. The most exquisite thing about the whole spiritual path, Swamiji put it in a different context, but every desire of the heart will be fulfilled. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto us. Swamiji said, all the desires that are planted in our heart, God does not plant them there so that we will be disappointed. He plants them there so that we will be fulfilled. But the problem with us is that we tend to imagine that the fulfillment that we know is there, we attach it to this or attach it to this or attach it to that. I fortunately was able to see past the carpet fairly quickly, but a lot of people can't. I've, ha I've had very little opportunity in my life to make my living space attractive. I've done it maybe two or three times. It's not a career with me. But every time I start in it, honestly, I can see how and why people who have the means to do that will buy, will buy and decorate and sell and buy and decorate and sell because it's an art form and you begin to enjoy it and it's the way you express yourself and you make beauty and, but of course when you're finished we don't understand that it was the flow of energy that we really enjoyed and it's not the thing itself and these are the ways in which our desires and the fulfillment of them especially our creative 
the creative expression of who we are, it gradually teaches us. I have had that experience of writing this book about Swamiji, which I've talked about a number of times here, which has been for me the, the basically the, the culmination of a lifetime of discipleship. And I'm, I'm very happy the book is there, you know, and I have looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. But in a certain sense, the process of writing it was the actual experience for me. And the fact that there's now a book and that other people can benefit from it, I have a, just I have a very interesting impersonal relationship to it because it was the process of doing it, mastering my own limitations, attuning to Swamiji, the concentration, the discipline, the, the exquisite joy of solitude on a level that I'd never gotten to experience before. All of those were experiences of consciousness. And the necessity to focus into a material manifestation was what guided my consciousness and, and was the measure of whether or not my consciousness was right. But in the end, it was the flow through me that was actually my part of it. The book now is Swami's project and he can do whatever he wants with it. But what I learned from it was the joy of being a channel. You see? And we have men, and so our, the karma that's given to us, you know, where are we spiritually? Where are we on the map of self realization? It's not necessarily at all uh, a sign of lack of spiritual advancement to have many ambitions, you know, and many, many talents and many demands upon our energy and uh, many compelling things that we feel we must do, whether they're happily chosen or imposed upon us by life. You know, uh, challenges of health, difficulties with our children, um, legal problems, financial catastrophes, all the different negative things that happen, or tremendous uh, vocational opportunities or artistic opportunities. All of them demand our material forms that force us to discipline our consciousness. And when we discipline our consciousness, that's what we end up having. And in a, in a real sense, if I can put it this way, consciousness loves us back. You know? It's like that is a living flow of energy. And the more we actually learn the lessons that our life experience teaches us, the more we find ourselves part of this greater flow of reality and we begin to realize, one, that we are not alone in this universe and it's not because we have each other that we're not alone, but we're not alone because we are part of a greater reality. And when we begin to tune ourselves to that greater reality, that's when we begin to realize who we really are. And realization isn't that, well, when I first came onto the spiritual path, I don't even remember what book I read this in, but it said that there are several ways that enlightenment can strike. And one of them is it can come to you while you're sound asleep. So I and my friends, we all voted for that one. <laughs> I would like to be enlightened while I'm sound asleep. Doesn't that sound like a nice way to do it? I go to bed as one person, I wake up as a, you know, as a realized soul. That looks like a good system to me. Another friend of mine 
when he learned that there were three states of consciousness, subconscious, conscious, and superconscious, he was a very good sleeper. <laughs> he said, well, I've mastered one of the three. <laughs> you know, I'm one-third of the way there. So we, we get these sort of silly ideas in our mind. But the fact is that it isn't a question of, we, we don't go from total darkness to total light. It's our, our spiritual progress and this is one of the most important things to really understand. Um, I, I have a couple of small apple trees outside um, my kitchen where I live at the present time. I'm very fond of apples. And I, I often really like to, um, you know, just I like the way the things that God made look. You know, and uh, cutting open an apple and you have those little beautiful apple seeds in there. And it's just astonishing to contemplate I can look out at the apple tree, which is not so big right right now, but even it's a whole lot bigger than that seed. And the, the, the very idea that an apple tree is in that seed, it's just, it, it, well, if you don't believe in God, you should. That's the only thing. I mean, how, how can it? Where is it? You know, how, how can it possibly be? But f- to get from that beautiful little brown seed to being able to produce more apples and stand tall like the apple tree can, there is an absolutely required series of steps, isn't it so? And no matter how much I yell at that apple seed, you know, or or criticize it or even encourage it, there's no way I can get it to an apple tree without sprouting it, having the the little tiny green thing come up, have that green thing slightly thicken, you know, have it turn into a little stem, then it turns into a sapling. I mean, I, I, I've never actually grown an apple tree from seed, but I get the concept and so do you. If at any point you try to skip one of those stages or you get so mad at it that you break it and it can't go any further, <clears throat> we've accomplished nothing, have we? That's exactly who we are. We're just a tiny seed in the hands of God who knows that we have this enormous destiny. But we're not going to get there any faster by being impatient. Nor are we going to be able to skip any of the necessary learning stages, which is what it is for us, because once we reach a full-grown body, the body does begin to age. We do get to start over with a new one, you know, repeatedly. But in our consciousness, we're just moving through each of those stages. So on a certain level, it really doesn't matter at all what stage you're in. Like, who cares? Because what will it serve you to know? The only thing that we're going to be able to do from here, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting dual reality, and it's not dissimilar to, to doing various of our practices, including Kriya. You always have your attention at the spiritual eye, but you can be simultaneously conscious of all the chakras in the spine. We do exercises where we might chant Om at every chakra, or in Kriya we we chant Om at the chakras, but you never take your attention off the spiritual eye, but simultaneously you're conscious of this whole other flow. So as devotees, as self-realizationists, on the way to that will come, that will come, On one hand, we always know that there's a light. This is where we're going. This is who I really am. Everything else here is just the project to get there. 
But at the same time, we can't be looking so much there that we don't know where our feet are. Or, or we get confused about where our feet are supposed to be because we're the seed growing into the tree. And the only possible step we can take is the length of our stride. And we can't get there any faster by being annoyed by the length of our stride. And the length of our stride is, is truncated, is defined, is, is confined by the karma that has been given to us because we have certain lessons to learn. And no matter how we feel about that, um, there, we used to joke about what we would call true but irrelevant spiritual advice. <laughs> you know, like somebody's really upset and somebody comes, oh, it's all in God's hands. No, I don't think so. You know, or it may be, but that's not what I want to hear right now. You know, it can be the truth, but it's not helpful. It's not relevant in the moment. So we have to also, you know, what, what the karma that we have is what exactly designed to push us to put our foot where our foot needs to be next. And it's, it's the necessary stage from the seed to the tree. Why? Why? Who knows why? But it doesn't really matter why, because we've got to do something with our feet. And we have to put them somewhere where they can actually stand, right? Like that. So this is, you know, these are the fundamentals of it. Now, I'm going to walk over there. You know, we have this uh, impression, because the material world seems really large to us, for me to get, <laughs> there she is, for me to get uh, from California to India, I have to travel basically 24 hours door to door, a pretty continuous travel. It's a big distance. I have to go halfway, literally halfway around the world. It's a 12 and a half hour shift in time. It seems like a big place. And that's just half. And that's just from one country to another. So we get the feeling that the material world is really big. All the masters tell us that the material world, master described, the material world is like a little tiny basket, like a, a hot air balloon, like a little tiny basket hanging beneath the astral world, the whole material universe. And that doesn't even go into the concept of infinity, however we would go there with our minds. So the first thing we have to understand is a way of thinking of it is like this. If you think of, of creation like this, and this is just opening out, it's a, rever- it's a funnel opening out to infinity. And we are all of this. This is all our consciousness. And when we incarnate, we're about that big. You know, so far from this being like the culmination, we tend to think of this as the opposite, which is that everything conspires and comes to a focus in us, and then here we are, like this. <laughs> it's just the opposite. Everything that we are contracts all the way down and becomes this little tiny figure and realization. And then what happens is Maya kind of puts a lid on us right here. So we may have the good karma, as all of us have had, to at least understand in principle, you know, that that the infinite has become identified with this tiny material self. I mean, we don't even identify with the whole world. We just identify with this one little body. In order for me to get to India, I had to get on the plane, I had to get on several planes, I had to have all my carry-on luggage, I had to have all my check-through luggage. I mean, it was just this huge, giant project to bring my tiny little body over to here 
you know, just so I could be here because this is what I identify with. I identify with it too strongly to be able to teleport myself right over here or to be everywhere at the same time as Master was able to be. And then Maya puts a little lid on us, God puts a lid on us, and this is who we think we are. Realization is to understand that there's no boundary here. I am center everywhere, circumference nowhere, Master says. And the process of realization, if you want to think about it, is just gradually encompassing more and more of who we actually are. We never cease to also be this, which is really sort of the fun part of it, which is why these masters could incarnate, live as human beings. Swamiji said something to us that was interesting once. He said, in many ways, you who never met master have it easier, Swamiji said, than I did. He said, because there I was with this strange dilemma, which is I knew that master was God himself, but he was next door having dinner. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, he would go out in his car and he would, he would give us money for ice cream. And Swamiji said it was very, extremely confusing to his mind to be able to just sort of understand how that could all be together. And here's something that's really fun, and you can do this uh, during the break or when you go home. Conversations with Yogananda, number 99. And the conversation is between the monks and Master, between Swami and Master, about when Swamiji finds out certain things that the monks are doing that might not be the best for them, should he tell Master about it? You know, and Swami was in charge of the monks, you know, sort of, how do I do this? Because aren't you omniscient? (laughs) Don't you already know? So why would I tell you? And then Master, in a few sentences, discusses the problem of cosmic consciousness. (laughs) I mean, he really does. He talks about how, yeah, I sort of do know, but you know then, on the other hand, I don't. Because I don't really know until you tell me. And then I put my mind to it, and then I know. But if you don't tell me, I don't know. Gosh, sir, I've never really considered the problems of omniscience, you know, like what it's like. But Master, in the most sort of casual way, is talking about, yes, I'm here, but I'm also here. And when my attention is here, I'm not aware of this part of it. Swamiji once put it this way. He said, uh, this is in the book uh, Divine Friendship. It's a letter he wrote in, I'm not sure, maybe, no, I think it was in the 80s he wrote it. He talked about his ego self and his soul is how he put it. And he said the soul is conscious of many things that the ego doesn't know. He said, but Swami speaking of himself, but I'm finding that the soul and the ego are communicating more than they used to. <laughs> you know, so that the the ego self carrying out its duties as an individual body begins to receive more awareness. Swami, this also came up in the context of uh, uh, someone asked Swamiji about the fact that that oftentimes people would and do dream about Swamiji and then something happens that seems very real. And, and Swami was talking about this, that people would write to him and say that they had a dream and this was the advice and so on. And Swamiji said it's interesting because he said he wasn't conscious of going to that person in a dream and yet the advice that was given was, was often, usually, advice that he wanted to give that person. But there was waiting for the opportunity to give it. So. I had an experience where someone had a dream about me in which I told them exactly what I really wanted to tell them, but I just didn't know how to approach 
you know, and I said to Swami, it was just, it was a very interesting thing because I had been trying to think how I was going to get this point across. Then the woman comes to me and tells me that when we were both asleep, I told her. So I sort of, you know, Swamiji, what is this? And I wasn't looking for any great, lo, my child, now you can, you know, now it can be revealed kind of thing at all. I just was curious about it. And his answer was, it, Swamiji's funny. Sometimes he, will, he would sort of repudiate. He, first he would sort of say, oh, I don't know, like that. So he sort of did that. Oh, I don't know. Like, sort of like he didn't even want to answer. But then always a minute later or ten seconds later, he would suddenly give you the answer. So that's what he sort of said, like, you know, and he said he had the same experience. But then he said, the superconscious never sleeps. You know, the, the bo- sleep is a phenomenon of the brain and the body. Spirit doesn't get tired. How could spirit get tired? What is there to wear out? But the brain gets tired and the heart and the lungs and the spleen and all of that. It all has to sleep. But when it goes to sleep, there's no, there's no lack of consciousness on this level. And then Swamiji said, just because your brain goes to sleep doesn't mean that who you are changes. So if you have a desire to help people, if your brain has gone to sleep, and your superconscious sees an opportunity to help people, it doesn't need to rest, it'll just help. I mean, it was such a simple and sweet way to put it, isn't it? And it has nothing to do with being a great avatar, anything like that. It just has to do with the sincerity of our hearts. You know, if we sincerely desire to serve, then God will give us a way to serve. And that's the primary lesson of every experience. How can I serve? You know, the masters epitomize where we're going. They sacrifice everything to come and help us. And eventually, we must become masters with that same complete lack of regard for self. But in the meantime, that's how we get there. That's the part of this question, where am I, how do I get there? The answer is, how can I serve? Now, see, this begins from the thought of what I was saying earlier, that Divine Mother loves us. And all Divine Mother wants to do is give us a chance to learn our lessons. So if we are to become divine in ourselves, if we are to reflect who we really are, it's really very, very simple. It's, how can I serve? I was asked yesterday by uh, uh, one of the devotees here, who has an... uh, a normal career, you know, I, I have no experience of that. I came to Ananda when I was 24 and prior to that I had just very small jobs. I never had a career anywhere. So I don't really know what it's like to work in a corporate setting. So I have to, this is my full disclosure before I say anything else. But this man was talking to me about difficulties that he sort of continuously has with, I think primarily his bosses, but people he works for. So, you know, I have like two minutes to offer something that's useful, and I asked Swamiji, what could I possibly say that's helpful? And the answer is the attitude of, how can I serve? You know? And if, if, if you think about it, if you think about relationships, any relationships you have, whether they're in your work setting, your home setting, when somebody wants to help you, And when their attitude is, how can I help you? And I don't mean, you know, in an unreasonable way, but just have a serviceful attitude. What are you trying to accomplish? How can I help you accomplish it? 
you know, being in a position of leadership as I have been for many years, just any person who comes, who, who even thinks to say, what are you trying to accomplish? How can I help you accomplish it? I mean, it's just like, it's heaven sent, you know? And then for ourselves, when we don't know what to do, we look around and we see somebody who's trying to accomplish something that either I'm also responsible for, or I'm also committed to, or I don't have anything else to do, I might as well help you. And this is what we're always being asked. All our karma, all of it, just comes down to us being able to ask the question, how can I serve? And it's not just serving you and you and you and you, or my mother or my children, it's serving the light. It's serving the cause of light, and it's also serving the presence of light. How can I bring more light into this situation? Whatever it might be, how can I serve the light in this situation? And you know that situations can get complicated, but how can I serve the light? And that's forward for all of us. Last night we were having a, a different discussion. Let me find my eraser. Where is it? What did I do with it? Oh, there it is. Thank you. <clears throat> this great piece of art is now going away. <laughs> I, uh, there's a woman named Dana Anderson who's a, an artist and she gives creativity workshops. And She's a very good artist. So she gives uh, creativity workshops for real artists to learn to paint well. And then she gives creativity workshops for people like me who got sort of crushed when they were three or four that teach us how to be four years old again. <laughs> so I took that workshop, you know, and I plastered the paint on and played with the chalk. And it was fantastic. So this is my, this is a high level of art for me. So what was I possibly talking about? What was I talking about? Oh, how can I serve? That's what I was talking about. Okay, I'm going to make another picture here. This picture is uh, I, I wanted to start with the triangle because I wanted you all to see how things get big. <laughs> because the entire question of spiritual growth is actually two words. It's whether or not we're moving in an expansive direction or a contractive direction. And that is a subjective question. Because what may be expansive for one person may be contractive for something, someone else. If, for example, you have, develop, you have a, developed a very high level ability, let's say, in handling money, and being able to just be a finance director or an investment counselor or something like that, it's just something that you can do. Um, so you may be very, very good at it, but it's not expansive for you to keep doing it because it's just a comfortable zone for you. It's like who you are and who you can already, what you can already do. Um, for someone else, you know, who may be very artistic but very ungrounded in the world, to learn to just keep the accounts and pay their taxes might actually be expansive for them because they've allowed themselves just to float too freely and become completely ungrounded in this world. And expansive is to realize that there are realities that have to be met. For a person, uh, for example, um, in, uh, I mean, I'm sure you all have heard of Elvis Presley, who was, of course, very, very famous, beautiful singing voice, tremendous gifts. And he actually became a disciple of this path. It came out later in his life. The, the fact that was true. 
But in the end, his fame just destroyed him. He became many things, including drugs and so on like that, and it just, he was very, very unhappy. So was it really expansive for him to become so famous and successful at what he did? You know, would he have been better off if he had taken another path? Now, there's no way to say, but you can't really just look at what happens. Now, he did become a disciple of Master, so maybe all the suffering that the, uh, that the, the fame gave him actually caused him finally to expand in the right way. Um, I've talked in other contexts. When I was uh, 18 years old, uh, I realized that the more or less harmonious temperament that I had was not actually because I was harmonious. It was because I was very afraid to express a contrary opinion to people around me. And I had a primary relationship in which that was operating in a very negative way. And I realized that what looked like, an, like a positive quality, which for an angry person might have been expansive, for me actually the center point of the vritti that I was operating from was not harmony or love, but it was fear. So for me to continue to be harmonious and always getting along with everyone and always saying what they wanted and doing what they wanted was not at all expansive for me. It was extremely contractive because I was holding on to this fear, you know, desperately holding on to this fear. And expansive for me was to become outspoken and rude. (laughs) And as it happened, I was living in New York City that summer which for those of you who aren't familiar with the culture of New York City, rude is pretty much what it is. (laughs) Not that the people there think it's rude, it's just they're extremely blunt-spoken, and they just, uh, that's just the way they are. I'm California-raised, you know. In California, we're mellow, very mellow. In New York, it's, hey, what are you doing, buddy? Get out of my way. That's my taxi, not your taxi. And nobody, you know, nobody thinks that there's anything wrong with that. For me, it was just like near death. (laughs) And also, of course, it's a big city like here, so you're constantly interacting with strangers. So you can kind of like exercise all this stuff and there's no terrible jeopardy because you're probably never going to see them again. So I got to practice. I got to practice not being afraid of just stepping forward and standing up. I mean, I had let the grocer put the fruit on the scale, pressed down with his thumb to make the weight higher. I mean, he'd been doing that for weeks. And I didn't have the nerve to say, hey, buddy, get your thumb off the scale. So I, you know, got myself together. And, you know, and then he, of course, said, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like it meant nothing to him. It was like this huge thing for me because it was expansive for me to do that. So what we're working with is We're the tiny little contracted dot at the bottom, and we have to get bigger. We have to get bigger in the right direction, but the right direction depends on what is at the center of our vrittis. You understand? For some people, for example, you know having children is a very, very important, expansive experience because otherwise they'll just live for themselves. For others, I put myself in that category even though I love children and I always expected to have children, I finally realized that I just really couldn't devote that much energy to one or two people. 
just wasn't what I was born to do. Even though taking care of my nephew, which is the closest I came, my sister called me. Her son was uh, her son is now a lawyer. He was also born a lawyer. <laughs> you know, so from a very young age, everything pretty much had to be argued out with him, and he was really he was quite good at it. So when he was about six or seven, my sister lived in Los Angeles and I was in Northern California, and she called me and she said, I'm going to give you two choices. Either you can visit me in prison where I will be for child abuse, (laughs) or you can invite your nephew to spend some time with you this summer. (laughs) So I invited him to spend some time. (laughs) And, you know, we got along beautifully. I totally loved it. Being a mother, just, I, I kind of... In our community, I just became one of the mothers, which I had never been before, which they enjoyed and I enjoyed. You know, I was just a mother. But uh, all of you know, it just takes a whole lot of time. And I loved doing it. I was, you know, I was very good at it. I made him costumes. You know, we had so much fun. But uh, after a few weeks, I thought, no, this isn't my life. This isn't expansive for me because I can do this easily. I don't have any problem. But I have a a world that I'm supposed to be involved with, not with one. So you see, it just depends. And, you know, partly you can tell whether you should be a parent by whether you have children or not. That's one of the clues, you know. (laughs) If you have one, you probably are supposed to be a mother because it's there for you. But when we make decisions, you see, it's not obvious. So what I was going to say is, let me get this here. Let me just think. Oh, the other picture I wanted to draw. There's another picture, and it, it looks reverse from expansion, but none of these things seem to work all that well. So you so see, you find these dead pens, and then you put them back in the drawer so the next person can also find them. <laughs> it's just one of the rules about whiteboards. <laughs> Let's try this one. Oh, there we have it. Look at that. Okay. <coughs> So this is going to look in reverse, and I I think I described this to you the other day, some of you, but I didn't have a whiteboard to say it. This is about time, but this is also about expansion. If we think of time as a circle, you know, and this is the past, this is the present, this is the future. This was something I understood from Swami's book, uh, The Time Tunnel, which is actually a children's book about time which finally allowed me to understand time. Swami had been trying to explain it for the past 35 years, and I could never understand it until he wrote it for children. And then all of a sudden I got it. I said, please write Revelations for Christ for children. (laughs) Please write the Bhagavad Gita for children. And then some of us will have a better chance of understanding. So this is the picture that I had. And then in the center of this circle of time, so to speak, is what you might call what we will call the superconscious state. And the superconscious state is using the, the triangle. You know, it's just expanding out to infinity. So at the center of this, I'll put the five, is that going to come out five points? Yes, the five-pointed star. Swamiji, in talking about time, I, I said this in this room, but I'm going to say it again. When he was a child, from earliest childhood, he would fall asleep by merging into the bright light that he saw in front of him. Just, I mean, from babyhood. You know, they'd put him in his crib, he'd see this great light, and he'd merge into the light. He did that all through his young childhood. He thought that's how everyone went to sleep. That's how he went to sleep, and he would 
go into a superconscious state. About the age of nine, for various reasons, he began to, as he put it, to become uncertain about altered states of consciousness. So he closed down to a certain extent until he met Master when he was 22. That was his dark night of the soul, so to speak. When he met Master, got Kriya, got the grace of the Guru, he went back into the superconscious state. And he said as soon as he did, he realized it was the same exact experience he'd had all through his childhood. And then he added the interesting statement, and no time had passed. Because there is no time in superconsciousness. Now he has given a long philosophical explanation about movement and matter, about why there's no time, which I still don't understand, so I can't explain it. So I'll just say, in absolute stillness, there's no time. Without movement, there is no time. So at the center of this continuum of past, present, and future is superconsciousness. And superconsciousness is equidistant to any point on this spectrum. We incarnate here. Here we are. Once again, we have a big picture and we have a little dot, don't we? Okay? This is me, or you, or your mother, or your father, or your aunt, or your nephew, or whoever it is. We're right there. And we have a, maybe a slight sense of what happened in the past, and a slight sense of what happens in the future. Most people don't. Most people just identify completely with the body they find themselves in, the conditions of it. There we are. That's who we are. Now, what happens when we begin to wake up? And, of course, becoming a disciple, practicing Kriya, doing Hong Sa, the Om technique, the energization, devotion, meditation, all of these things. It doesn't have to be this path. Any path that begins to say, wait a minute, I'm a little more than the material body. And if we, if we put in reincarnation and future reincarnations, there's some connection between this dot and the past and the future. But sitting right here, we can't really see it. You know, we, one might have some idea, but still one can't see it. It's just, this is the only body I know. A friend of mine, when she was dying, um, she was dying very consciously and very courageously. I mean, she had incurable cancer. Her mother had died of it. It was just, you know, she just, it was her fate, and she was accepted it beautifully. In fact, you know, people are so funny. Uh, she was a very attractive woman. She died in her 40s, I think. She was a very attractive lady. She'd actually been a fashion designer, so she was really quite lovely. And one of um, another friend sort of said to her, you know, the mind is so crazy. This gal's on her deathbed. She lived about five more days. And the friend said, your hair looks really nice. <laughs> and uh, the woman dying said, I'm going to be the cutest little corpse you ever saw. <laughs> she went like that. I mean, she was just that detached. Like, who cares what my hair looks like at this point? But still, there we are. But she said, as she was lying there, she said she saw thousands of faces going by. And every one of them had been hers at some point or another. And, I mean, it made her, like, so indifferent to the face that she was wearing. Having been in thousands of bodies before, what difference does it make if this one sloughs off at this point? That's really stepping out. See, what's happening is we're moving toward the center of ourselves, the point of origin. I mean, this, this doesn't look expansive, but it is expansive because this star is a window on infinity. So this is the material world and we're moving closer toward infinity. And the more we move toward it, the more 
reality we can perceive. So even just if you think about it like this, by the time you, you take any steps toward infinity, your view begins to expand, doesn't it? And so you begin to see a lot more of the past, you begin to anticipate the future, you begin to understand the relationship between past, present, and future. So this becomes expansive, doesn't it? Whereas people will say, you know, it doesn't matter if I drink, it doesn't, you know, you tell me it's bad for me, but I'm having a good time, what do I care? Because all we see is the present and we don't see what it's going to do to us in the future. I can just be unkind. If I can get money from somebody, even if it's dishonest, I'll just take it. Because we don't have any sense of anything but the present. We don't realize that the future, when it comes, will be now. (laughs) And the karma of it will be very real to us. But when we start moving toward infinity, then we begin to see, we begin to realize, oh, what's happening in the present must be related to something that happens in the past. And things happen to us, like when I was 18, somebody gave me a book by Vivekananda, which said, what you are today is the result of what you did yesterday, and what will you, you will be tomorrow is the result of what you do today. That was the first true thing anybody had ever told me in my whole life, and I just seized it like a drowning person would seize a, a lifesaver. Oh, there's a reason. There's a reality. There's a way to work with it. Of course, it came in the whole context of karma, reincarnation, and everything, but it was that phrase because it liberated me from this tiny, contracted view of reality, gave me a more expansive view. So where we are in our spiritual lives is we are incarnated somewhere on the rim, which is the material universe, and we are heading toward infinity. We have the astral worlds and the causal worlds, we have all these things, but the more we view everything that happens here from the perspective of eternity, the bigger the view that we have, and the more obvious it is what the expansive gesture is. You see? We break out of time, we break out of matter. That's what the spiritual journey is. But there's nothing, even though on this thing it looks linear, I'm going to put one more picture up, <clears throat> and then I'll, or I'll just, actually I'll just scribble on the side here. Even though this looks linear, The confusion of this is it isn't, because where we really are is like we stand here, this is like tidy, you know, this is like tidy, but our actual lives are not tidy at all. The direction of our spiritual growth is like this. (laughs) You know, like that. (laughs) And then your friend's direction of his spiritual growth is this way, you know. So there's just no way that we can make it work. The seed is going to become an apple tree by going through every maze that it needs to go through. But even on this template, you can paste this. You know, where am I? Am I viewing it from the point of view of eternity? And I'll give you a few more things before, if I want to take a break. And how how much am I breaking out of these tiny little perspectives? Okay, let's take a break. I have, I have two more very important, at least to me they seem important, I hope they seem important to you, ideas that I think will help and before we finish. And I'll try to leave a little time for questions. Somebody reminded me. Um, Bomata. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, 
that uh, Vivekananda uh, did the same thing. He, he would go into superconsciousness when he would go to sleep. I only read that very recently. And the description of, that Vivekananda had about the light that would come to him when he was a child and how he would sleep by merging into it was almost word for word what Swami described. And I, I read that like a year ago. And all this time I'd never read it. It was, uh, it was just fascinating how, how when... Uh, <clears throat> See, this is, let's see, where's my, is this it? See, the other thing about this, you know, this for us, is that there's a lot of us, us, see, like this. So we're all, we think we're separate because we're here. But as we begin to expand, you see, all of our consciousness begins to come into one. So here, we look, we look across and there's these gaps in our awareness. And so we all seem separate. But the other thing that happens when we begin to expand is we begin to recognize that we are a part of a greater reality and that we're all part of the same reality. You see, the same would be true in this when we move toward the center. You know, each one of us, as we begin to expand, you see that our, our expanded circles begin to overlap with each other. And that's when we can no longer do unkind, uncompassionate, or cruel things to each other because we, it's not just an idea that we ought to be nice. It's the actual realization that when I do this to you, I'm actually touching my own consciousness. I mean, great saints, stories of Ramakrishna, you know, the, the cook beats the cat and the welts appear on Ramakrishna's back because he's so unified with all that there is that an action taken against one sentient being is an action against him, even literally on his body. Master uh, winces when they're moving a tree and they drop the tree and Master says, can't, be careful, can't you tell it's alive? Because when the tree was hurt, he was hurt because he's not here with all this space seemingly between us. So this is why, um, this, is all, this is the basis of all moral law, is that in fact, you know, just... Uh, a breath away from where we presently stand, we realize that we are one with everyone. And this is the bad karma I was talking about. Being indifferent to that sets us up for a very serious lesson that we have to learn until we can appreciate that it's true. But people get very trapped here and they just don't know. You know, they steal from each other, they physically hurt each other, they emotionally hurt each other. They just think that there's all this space. But we know that there's not. So, I wanted to just <clears throat> give you a couple of very simple guidelines that are a little more specific than what I've said before. <clears throat> if we think between conscious, between subconscious and superconscious, which is in itself a huge story, which I thought I was going to give more of, but I really haven't. But if we want to just talk about the, you know, the, the, ener- the, the, the contractive, let's use contractive and expansive. The nature of contraction is that it requires less energy because we just get smaller and smaller and less and less aware or we, we, we don't expand from what we already are. You know, when we're just sitting in what we already are, there's no, there's no effort required to become more than this. You know, when I, I've talked in many contexts about what it took for me to be able to finally be able to write that book, and it was a, a constant effort to expand 
beyond this, these fixed ideas I had about myself. And the ideas were so fixed, and the habits of mind of being critical and not being adequate and you know, just thousands and not being able to concentrate and all kinds of things. And that's where I sat. And in order to break those things, it was a constant effort to, to break out of those boundaries and expand sufficiently so that doing this would be natural to me. So that's the expanse of the contractive issue. And I oftentimes, you know, basically, in one form or another, just wanted Swami to just leave me alone. You know, that was when I told him, if life were not so hard, it would be easier. <laughs> to which he said absolutely nothing, because there was simply, what are you supposed to say to something like that? But what I was saying is, leave me alone, let me sleep. And he knew I didn't really mean it, so there was just nothing to say. So he just let it sit there and let me just die of embarrassment for the next 15 years that I'd actually said <laughs> such a thing to him. <laughs> so everything that takes us in an expansive direction is always going to be require more energy than it's going to require to stay as we are or to shrink into lesser awareness. So a very simple rule of thumb is given a choice put out more energy rather than less because every situation that you're in is dual and it's not an absolute one or another it's just in this situation I can put out a little more energy or I can put out a little less energy and even though this sounds absurdly simplistic if you simply make it a rule in your life that in every situation I will put out a little more energy rather than a little less. And if you can put out a lot more energy, that's really terrific, but even a little more energy begins to orient you toward the expansive side. And so it's, it's very simple, like for example, and I'll just use <coughs> real life examples because I've actually done this. I myself don't, I usually don't keep sweets or cookies or chocolate in my house. I live alone. I can control my refrigerator. <laughs> And I love sweets and cookies and chocolate, but my body doesn't really much like them. And at the age that I am, um, when my body does get them, it never lets them go. <laughs> it's just so happy to have them that it just keeps them forever, which is expensive because you have to replace your clothes all the time at the very least. You know, it's just not, it's not a good idea quite apart from health or vanity. But... I also have a lot of guests through my house and my guests will bring all kinds of things into the house and so I will discover in my freezer ice cream, I will discover on my counter cookies, you know, like this. And so while I, the guests are there, I just let them live, but when the guests leave, you know, I'm always, I fa I'm faced with this dilemma, like what do I do, you know. So my, my, my policy usually, first I try to give it away, but so the ice cream is still in there you know, I will, I will put half of it down the garbage disposal and then eat the rest of it. And do it really fast, you know. <laughs> like, oh, there's still ice cream in there. I can't, you know, like I can't go put it in somebody else's community box. You can't just take ice cream and stick it in someone's mailbox. It doesn't work like that. So it stays there. I would like to have some ice cream. There's twice as much as I should eat. So I'll cut it in half, put it down the garbage disposal, turn on the garbage disposal, you know, just get it down the drain right away, then eat the other half. Okay? So, I have put out more energy rather than less. You see, I mean, it's a, it's a completely ridiculous example. <laughs> but it is, in fact, my, it is my actual practice, which is, I would like to eat all this ice cream, 
but that would be a low energy alternative. So I'm going to need half this ice cream, but I have to really get rid of the ice cream in order to do it. I'm a person who does not like to do housework at all, and I do not have the luxury that all you have of having people come into your house and do housework, although I've managed to live most of my life without doing very much, about which I am very proud. <laughs> but you know, the kitchen will be a, kitchen dishes are needed to be done. You know, I, want, I just want to go to sleep. I'm not very good at night. I don't like to do things at night. I'm, I'm energetic in the morning. You know, do I just walk out with all the old food just piled on the dishes or like that? I'm not going to wash them, but I'll rinse them. You know, I'll just rinse it off so that it'll be just a little less. I put out a little more energy rather than less. I need to write a long letter to someone. I don't really have the ability to write, but I've been procrastinating and I haven't done it. So I'm not ready to write the long letter, but I'll send a little email that says, thank you for writing, I'm thinking about a reply. I put out a little more energy rather than a little less. You can see, and in every circumstance, if you start making that a habit, what happens is the entire direction of your life begins to go toward an expansive direction. Because almost always you can do a little better. And see, where we, where we defeat ourselves is that we think we have to do a lot better. And so we, we set up something that's so big that even the thought of doing it causes us to contract because it makes us exhausted. Whereas if we just look at our feet and think, I could slide to here, then actually you'll have moved that far. Whereas if you think, oh, I have to step to there, so I'm going to step back at the mere thought of it, then at the end of the day you've gone nowhere. It's very weird about the spiritual life, and Master put it this way, the minutes are more important than the years, he said. Take care of the minutes, and incarnations will take care of themselves. Because it's just, life is a series of small opportunities. Master actually said in his book about worries and nervousness that worry is the result of mental indigestion. He said trying to digest too much all at the same time. He said just break it down to something small and then do something about it. Because then we're, we're always moving forward. Does that make sense? I've had many people tell me that that principle alone completely transformed their lives because there was always something positive that they could do. So, so think about it. Now the other one is, I mean, it's the eight manifestations of God, which I've mentioned in passing a few times and I don't have time to talk about them completely. If I think on my YouTube channel, if you type this in, you'll probably find it. So I don't know if they actually have an order, but I just will write love, joy, peace, <coughs> Calmness. What I always forget. What comes wisdom. next? Wisdom. 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 Yes, wisdom. Sound. There we go. I can count to eight. Light, and then it's written as power, but energy is easier to understand. So here's your second principle: wherever you stand, how you go forward. We always talk, these are the, what, these are the classic from the Sanatana Dharma tradition, nobody's making them up, that's what it's always been. I mean, I'm not making them up, Master didn't make them up, Swami didn't make them up, I don't know who did, but anyway, here they are. <laughs> God made them up. But this is the way that spirit manifests in creation. 
Okay? And so we're always trying to think, how can I be in tune with God? How can I serve God? How can I be a channel of God? And we don't really quite know what that means. Do I have to become Kali and wear a garland of skulls, you know, have a sword in my hand, you know? Do I have to become Bengali and sort of look like this, you know? Do I have to go around like Babaji in a loincloth? And, you know, just like we just don't know what we're supposed to do. So this becomes, actually becomes very concrete because these are not abstract ideas. These are actual experiences of everyday consciousness. And this is how we become an instrument of God in the world. And Master says, the channel is blessed by that which flows through it. So just like in every circumstance, we can always put out a little more energy rather than a little less. In every circumstance of your life, one of these eight aspects will be appropriate. And this is the word we were talking about this last night. How can I keep losing something? Okay. That there's two, there's two criteria for discriminating. You have to do that which is appropriate, and you have to do that which is accessible to you. That's, I don't know if that's how accessible is spelled, but you know how it is. Because it doesn't matter if... Uh, manifesting the power of Om would be appropriate in the situation. If you can't do it, it's irrelevant. It's true but irrelevant spiritual advice. Maybe wisdom is required, but you don't have any. <laughs> so you can put out energy. And what may be the appropriate way to put out energy is to run away. Because that's the most appropriate thing to do because lacking wisdom, calmness, peace, or love at the moment, you need to put out some energy. And the best kind of energy you can put away, out, Master said, if you know that a test is bigger than you can pass, Master said, run away. <laughs> very rarely, very rarely does the guru tell you what you want to hear. But this is one of those moments Seriously, that's what he said. There was a period of time in my life where I actually just walked away quite a lot. I was caught in a situation where I just died. None of, nothing else was available to me. But leaving was an option. And I would just leave because it was the only accessible thing I could do and it was more appropriate than what would happen if I stayed because I had no capacity and it took more energy to leave than it did to stay because of all the you know, compulsive negative emotions that would, will push you to do the wrong thing when you're in the wrong place. And you know, sometimes being, just being peaceful when somebody's arguing with you or being calm when somebody's trying to get you agitated or when everybody around you is really nervous and you don't know what to do, you just, if somebody is calm, it really helps the situation. I've been, somebody said to me once that I'm very good in other people's emergencies, <laughs> which is actually quite true. I'm not so good in my own emergencies, but when other people are having emergencies, I suddenly, you know, have the capacity, not always, but I can often be quite calm in their emergencies. Then you know, that you can, you can bring that. When somebody's unhappy, I, I was saying uh, yesterday or in here in another time, once we were in a very difficult situation with Swamiji, and he diffused it with a joke. He just told a very good joke at a time when nobody felt like laughing. And as soon as we all laughed, it's just like all of the darkness just completely went away. Humor isn't always 
appropriate or accessible, but in that particular case it was. You see? Um, sound is the sound of your own voice, the tone of your own voice. There was a period where I could always tell by the sound of my voice whether I should keep talking or not, <laughs> because I was... Uh, I had what I called a panic survival response to circumstances in which my survival was not at stake, even slightly, but I had an, uh, a nervousness inside of me that caused me to think I was about to be extinguished, when really it was just a disagreement over ideas, but my voice would accelerate and it would get faster and it would get a little higher like this and it would begin to talk more and more. And I just could, I, as soon as I heard that sound, I knew that I wasn't where I needed to be. And so I would usually leave the room because nothing else was accessible to me. And by, by contrast, a calm-sounding voice in, when everybody else is yelling or voices are getting really harsh, if you, if you put out, or if you turn on the right music or turn off the television or whatever it might require, you can change the sound in the room. Um, for most of the situations I've been in where I've been with someone who was dying, we would always play the Om vibration of Swami. And it was really, has been really impressive because I've been in situations like when my father was dying, my sister and brother and I were all with him. My mother had already passed. But we were in a, he was in a, a care facility because he was not mentally well. So he was being taken care of by people who could do that. My sister lived right nearby. Um, but we just played the Om. And everybody who came in that room, they had no idea what we were doing. But they all felt it just right away. So just putting the right sound in the room, because it was very expansive, it was very calm, it was very courageous. It just changed the whole atmosphere around him dying. And it's multiple times, almost always, we've played the Om when somebody is dying. It helps the dying person and it helps everyone in the room. You know, light can be not only, can also be lightening up, you know, just like I was talking about Swami. And sometimes just being joyful when people aren't. <laughs> you know, there's a uh, Haridas, who's ex uh, nice Swami Haridas, who lives in uh, Bangalore now. He's, he was incredibly good at using humor um, to, to lighten situations. And he was working at the, at the guest facility, and there were two kinds of chairs there. There were yellow chairs and there were brown chairs, and maybe there were 150 of each. One set was in the dining room and the other was in the temple. And they were like across the hall from each other. And one very hot summer afternoon, I came there and Haridas was having, somebody had wanted him to move all the yellow chairs to here and then all the brown chairs to here. And he was all by himself carrying these chairs. I, who tend to be a little reactive, said, what are you doing? And Haridas patted his rather ample middle and said, exercising. <laughs> he said, but if it has to be done again, I'm going to let somebody else get the benefit of the exercise. <laughs> and he was just absolutely terrific. You know, you, there were a lot of other things he could have said, but that's what he said. Because joy is an aspect of God. So we, we learn to work with these. If you memorize them, what is appropriate, what is accessible. And sometimes power is required, and I often point out here, nice is not one of these. Yes. Right? It's 
because appropriate is not always nice. That's why power is here. You know, sometimes power is required. Wisdom, love, and power. Sometimes manifested through the sound of your voice and the words that you use. And this is a real manifestation of God. This is contractive versus expansive. So, apple seed becoming apple tree, putting out a little more energy rather than less, trying to be an appropriate instrument of God according to what's accessible to you. And uh, the minutes are more important than the years. So, questions, thoughts, comments, protestations? (laughs) Yes. It is said, um, and I can't quite remember who said that darkness is the absence of light. Uh However, you also say that darkness is a conscious force. Uh So, where is that coming from? Is it my self-personifying the darkness, or is it something else going on? Well, there's lots of ways. The question is, if darkness is the absence of light, and I was quoting Master saying, vanish the veils of light and shade, But darkness is also a conscious force, so how does all those things work together? We just think how you answer this. I think of it in terms of the attractiveness of low energy. So, I mean, you can you can talk about the devil because the devil makes makes me do it, and Maya is conscious and Satan is conscious. Master said, I used to doubt the existence of Satan. Master himself said, but now I add my testimony to those of all those who came before, that darkness is a conscious force. So philosophically, I'm not capable of like parsing that out into exact phrases, but I know what my experience is. I, I tend to, I tend to not need to answer it here. I like to answer it here, because it, in the end, I want to know what to do about it. And I experience darkness as a conscious force, and I experience it as a force that tries to persuade me um, to do less. So, and I can psychologically and spiritually, all kinds of ways I can say it, but it's not passive. So whether it's an abstract cosmic reality, my own psychology, the devil, I really don't know, but it's not passive. And if I am passive in the face of it, I shrink. And so it becomes quite practical. It's like if I pretend that, that, I, that I'm neutral, that it's neutral, that everything is really light, I shrink. I, I'm, always, I'm always having to do battle. I'm always having to make the decision to put out more energy rather than less. Because at least in me, um, the devil still lives. You know, He's still able to influence me, however you want to use those phrases. And all we have to do is just ask ourselves, what's my experience? You know, this is to me is wisdom. What's my experience? My experience is that if I don't push for greater awareness, I will, I will be pulled into lesser awareness. So it seems conscious to me, even though in the end, the way I like to think of it is, let me see how to say it, that darkness is finite and uh, light and bliss is infinite. So eventually we transcend the finite and go into the infinite. I don't even know if that's philosophically sound, but it works for me. <laughs> you know, It's the gospel according to Asha, which is very important to distinguish between anything Master said. Okay, does that help? Yes. I 
Akshayji, when you uh, use the phrase of samadhi, manage the wave of light and shape, what does that really mean? What does is that it, mean? Yeah, is it only presence of one light or is it... Vanish the veil of light and shade. In fact, do I have I quoted that right? Vanish the veil of light and shade, lifted every vapor of sorrow, sailed away all dawns of fleeting joy, gone the dim sensory mirage, love, hate, health, disease, life, death, perish these false shadows on the screen of duality. What it means is this world that we think of as real is just a play of light and dark. It's Master used to talk about the movies but now you can't because there is no such thing as the movies anymore. But when the movies used to be when Master was there, there was a projection booth and there was literally a beam of light shown through the film and then it would appear on the screen. And when you saw it on the screen, it looked like all this stuff was happening. But if you followed the beam of light back, you realized it was just a beam of light through a little tiny bit of film. And so that's sort of what he was talking about is that it's, it's being projected, this whole thing, this is all what the Master say to us, this whole thing appears to be happening, but it's actually just a, a projection of one light. And so what vanishes is this illusion of separateness, and what remains is the vision of light. Master himself said, Swami quotes this, Master said, if you could see yourselves as I see you, you would realize that you are nothing but light. So even, we look at the material bodies. I've been with Swamiji and I've seen that on his face. He just look, and he, you can tell he's just seeing something else. I've been working so hard to remember your individual faces and your individual names and I'm so proud of myself for getting many of them. Not all of them by any means, but you all look separate to me. But you all look like old friends because at least I'm not absolutely trapped over here where I'm the only reality. I recognize you as we're all part of Master's family and you all recognize me. But nonetheless, I still see you as separate. But Swamiji saw us differently, Master saw us differently. So it's that illusion of separateness that vanishes when we, when we enter into cosmic consciousness. It's, you know, it's still vibrating there, but we see it for what it is. You know, that happens to us every so often, doesn't it? You know, when we're, we were chanting together for Swamiji's birthday, and uh, not birthday, anniversary, two nights ago, just like when we were just singing, it was like there was no other reality except us just singing. You know, the veil of light and shade, every vapor of sorrow, it was just gone. There was just this one sound of all this chanting, and then later on there was all this light that all the individual candles had been there. All It hadn't vanished, but it had certainly thinned, you know, quite a lot. And we were looking through it to something else. So it's not a all or nothing. It's a gradual expansion and then a, a periodic breaking through, which increases the longer we're on the path. Or we have good days or bad days or good decades or bad decades, but you know it works out. Nirvana. Um, just to uh, take from the question he asked about darkness and light. Right. Um, you know when we talk about the devil, mm-hmm. and that brings the question of evil and how to protect yourself from this force. And uh, you know, also been introduced to the idea that. In God is one, and there's only one power, 
because there is no other count of force against God because he created everything. So for me, the idea of a devil or evil and having to protect yourself sounds terrifying. Yes, I can hear that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> the fact that the devil made you do it is not a comforting thought to you. <laughs> Comforts me, just something terrific, but I can see it might not comfort you, yeah. Um, yeah, there you have it. But you see, that's why, you know, Swamiji in the path tells this just really crazy story where you know, he'd heard about the possibility of disincarnate entities who could possess you and, and Swamiji being who he was. Wow, that sounds interesting. And so he tells the story in the path of having a dream and being, and it was like a semi-superconscious or a superconscious dream and he, he knew that tonight was the night that he was going to meet a disincarnate entity. This is when he was a young monk at Mount Washington. He starts sort of traveling off and he hears this kind of dark ohm sound is the only way he kind of describes it. And he goes into this place where I think the floor is moving and all of this and he realizes he really is in the presence of a conscious dark force. I mean, just like, you know, people who are really good when they die, they, they remain good. People who are really evil when they die, they remain evil. And people can reach across, you know, all, all they are, and you have to just hear this, all they are is dead, you know? It's like they're not something else. They're just people who are dead. So they're in the astral world and they're trying to influence the material world. Angels are influencing us all the time. And, and bad people are just continuing to be bad. And that's what a disincarnate entity is. It's just somebody in the astral world who's just trying to create mischief. So Swamiji was in the presence and he could feel this evil force, you know, this conscious evil entity. And all of a sudden he thought, this is not fun. And I think he sort of said he felt it moving into his consciousness. So he just called out, Master! Like that. Instantly the dark was gone. Because he called to God and the, and the divine force was stronger. If he'd wanted to be in that darkness, or had been afraid, that would be different because that would be an opening between himself and the darkness. But he just wanted to be in the light. So, these things happen. They are real, um, but we don't have to worry about them. We just have to move ourselves into the light because the light is more powerful. But fear is a link. Fear is one of the ways that these things link. So it's part of what we all have to get over. I mean, you can extend it to the point of thinking of disincarnate entities like that. But the fact is, evil frightens me. I don't think about disincarnate entities because I feel protected, but evil frightens me. I've, I've met one or two people in my life who I think are really evil, and I, I fear being subjected to evil people. I fear evil people having power over me. You know, I think of it in terms of, I tend to think of it in terms of torture or prison imprisonment, that sort of thing. But I, I'm frightened of it. You know, and when I, and a few times when I've been in the presence of evil, it frightens me. There's no question about it. So yeah, it's something that's there that we have to work with. But we can't, we don't have to walk around feeling all the time that it's about to come into us. We just have to put ourselves into the light. We have to act appropriately. We have to put out more energy. See, disincarnate entities can take over when you're not putting out energy. 
See, and that's why Master said, they prowl around where people are drinking and taking drugs. Because when, especially when you, when you, when you lose control of your own consciousness, that's when someone else can, can get, in either, if not control, at least influence over your consciousness. But if you're in command of your own consciousness, there's no way anybody can take you over. So what you have to practice is being wide awake and active and involved in your own life. And so then, nobody can take your place because I'm here. You have to vacate the space before someone else can take it over. And that's why meditation is not going blank. Meditation is actively raising our energy and connecting with the higher power. It's not going blank because going blank is lowering our energy. So the very simple answer which really can illuminate all fears is in all circumstances put out more energy rather than less. And if we always put out more energy rather than less we absolutely close the doors because this temple is occupied. (laughs) Someone is using it. There's no open door here. If I'm constantly drunk and in a stupor and you know taking drugs and just trying to never really put out any energy nobody's home. And that's where entities go is when nobody's there. And yeah, they exist, but they're just bad people. That's really actually all they are. There was this, let me just finish this whole story, there was this woman who was mentally unbalanced and she came into our community for various reasons. We had a karmic connection to her, but we had a, actually an Indian Ayurvedic doctor who came and he told us that she, was, she had a couple of entities in her and at night when she would go to sleep, and I really believe this is true, the entities would wander around looking for someone else to cause trouble with. When they came into my little dwelling place, I got a little nervous about them. I didn't, I wasn't really terrified, but I could sort of feel there was somebody there and I didn't much like it, so I kind of turned on all the lights and started chanting. When they came into my friend's place, she woke up and she said, get out of here, why are you being so bad? She started reprimanding them as she would have reprimanded any of us. (laughs) This is not helping you. What makes you think that this is what you should be doing? You should just get out of her and get out of my trailer and just go and do something constructive with your life. I mean, you know, she just, it was just bad people. And they couldn't touch her because there was no opening in her to it. So, I mean, that's what you have to realize. This isn't something you don't know. It's just individuals who are confused and uh, don't give them power and they won't have power. I don't condemn my own desires as evil and good. I condemn my, some of my desires as wiser or stupider. Yeah, and it's, it's not cosmic. It's that certain actions will result in consequences I won't enjoy. And other actions will result in consequences I will enjoy. And sometimes the ones that will bring things I won't enjoy look more attractive than the ones that will bring me what I want. And that's the battle. I mean, that's all it is. You see, we can make it huge and mysterious and cosmic and terrifying, but it isn't. It's just wise actions bring good results and unwise actions bring less, less good results. But that's all, just less good. And eventually, we have to put out more energy rather than less, so... Lahiri said, eventually, eventually, why not now? And that's basically the end of the story. Does that help? All right, we have actually used up all our time. 
And thank you all very much. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to share with you. Okay.